uh, Marie Antoinette, the historical figure, is like my ultimate problematic fave. <laughs> like she is my Scorpio LARPing walking disaster, and I love her. She was a mess, but I love her. Hey everyone, I'm Rebecca, and this is Women Direct the Podcast, all about great films and the women who make them. Today I'm here with Julia Empey, a doctoral candidate in English and Film Studies at Wilfrid Laurier, and co-host of the Royal Diaries Unlocking History, a podcast. Thanks for being here, Julia. Thanks for having me. I, I'm really happy to be here. So when we were discussing what sort of movies we might talk about when you came on, you right away um, mentioned that you uh, have studied Sofia Coppola and you wrote uh, one of your thesis papers on her, I think. In my master's, I had to write like a major research project paper, which was basically like a cumulative paper type of thing that I wrote in the summer term. And so basically like... This, like, the distilled thesis statement was that I want to look at how white women are being utilized within popular culture as a police force against racialized others. And I used uh, Scarlett Johansson as my case study. So I looked at Lost in Translation for like the first half. And then I looked at the Luc Besson film Lucy uh, for the second half. But Scarlett was sort of and like her star power and all of that was sort of like the line that went throughout it all. So yeah, that's what I wrote on. That's cool. And you also mentioned that you've given a paper or you presented something on The Beguiled. Yeah, no. So um, I went and I delivered a conference paper, basically. So it was on The Beguiled and I really wanted to go and unpack both the film for the 1970s, the director, I think it was Siegel, I'm blanking on the director's name right now, starring Clint Eastwood, and do a bit of a contrast uh, with Coppola's film, and to really go and kind of like push back a little bit on like our narratives about like the female gaze versus the male gaze, and kind of maybe flip the script a little bit, and how Coppola might be actually suggesting something a bit different than it might seem on the outset. And so that's, yeah, that's basically what it was about. I'm trying to not bore you by giving you like this really long explanation of it. But yeah, no, so that's what that paper is about. This is sort of like nerdy stuff I crave. Okay, because like, okay, so like, let's just stick it with the beguiled. Like everybody in their their grandmother at this point knows of Laura Mulvey's, uh, the female gay, I mean, the male gaze part of me. And so I think the thing for me is that we see a lot more, I think, in contemporary criticism. And I think like rightly as more women are getting behind the camera and everything like that about how, oh, are we now seeing like a female gaze? And I myself don't necessarily buy that by virtue of like how both Mulvey's theory is constructed, but also to within like the mechanics of filmmaking itself is something that Mulvey's really interested in too. And like the role of spectatorship as well. And I don't think that that dynamic because it is conscientious of itself can ever fully be subverted or unmade or flipped on. 
And I think that a more interesting uh, conversation that could be there, that I think that Coppola actually really does get to in a lot of her films, is something that uh, Mulvey talks about in a later paper that she gave. I think it was like at Princeton and like the space and architecture conference. But anyways, she goes and she talks about Pandora's box and the topographies of the mask and going and talking about how the woman's body on the film mimics a similar way in that Pandora's box is both. There is the terror of the box because either it is empty, like the woman um, on the screen because she has no subjectivity or there's also the terror that if you open the box which is what happens in the whole myth that all the horrors and the terrors of the world are going to be left like let out right so all the horrors and the terror of female interiority will be let out if she's pr- portrayed fully within the screen like on the screen And that's like a really like high level, not really doing the whole concept justice. But that to me, I think is a lot more interesting instead of trying to have women like take over a subject position of power. It's really to go and suggest that, well, maybe instead of wanting to go and do exactly what men have been doing this whole time, because I don't know about you, but like men are pretty terrible sometimes and I don't really want to go and be doing what they're doing, even within film. So to go and have a suggestion that women can actually have interior lives, have thoughts, have feelings, have motivations, be full, like those full rational creatures, right? That they're often told that they're not. And to go and have that as like a driving force, like that to me is a lot more interesting So that's what I was trying to go and get at in that paper and using what Coppola does in The Beguiled. And I think that she's a lot more interested in female interiority, not just in The Beguiled, but like in Lost in Translation and Somewhere and The Bling Ring and Marie Antoinette, like all of her films, right? So I think that's okay. Well, I'm just approaching this as like a layperson. I'm not a film scholar, but I really appreciate you bringing this up. You've given me a lot to think about. And it's especially interesting because Coppola is one of those directors who, from the very beginning, she's, there's something very, like, unapologetically girlish and female and celebrating about um, mm-hmm. her films. And it's just... Yes. It's definitely very interesting to think of it that way because she's someone who gets slapped a lot with that like female gaze and as an example of the female gaze. So it's interesting to yeah. think about like the way in which she might sort of subvert and reject that. Well, I mean, I think a really good example of that might just even be in like the Virgin Suicides when she has almost like a beat for beat recreation of the scene where in the novel they're going to go and cut down the tree that Cecilia loved and jumped from right well she actually didn't Mm -hmm. jump from the tree but yeah like that significant tree and how the four sisters like you know all four girls like please don't cut down this tree and they said well it looks fine but on the inside it's rotten and it's dead right which really becomes this larger metaphor for what the girls are lo- going through. They look fine on the outside, but in like on their interiors, like nothing is there anymore because of the circumstances that they're in. They're declining like mental well-being. And so I think that like from like the very beginning, Coppola is interested more in like 
what's beneath the surface here and what does it mean to be our unwillingness to go and look beyond the facade like i think that's really important to her at least in my perspective and it's especially um one thing that makes her so unique i maybe not in the terms of the subject matter but in terms of her success at communicating it is that i find she really she you can tell throughout her work she really loves teenage girls and she really respects Mm -hmm. them in a way that's really communicated in all her works you mentioned the virgin suicide suicides which is of course um her first film it came out in Mm -hmm. 1999 and it was pretty successful and i don't know if other people remember this but i'm definitely old enough to remember that um it's pretty shocking now but People attributed her uh, critical success with that movie to her father, who is a renowned filmmaker, Francis Ford Coppola. And I remember- 100%. Yeah, I remember even at the time, uh, people were like, well, he'd basically directed it, you know, which makes absolutely no sense if you think about it. And she's even said that because her father was such a successful filmmaker, she banned him from coming to set because she didn't want to be undermined. She was only, I believe, 28 when she made that film. Well, I mean, that's sort of like even I was, have you heard of, like, you probably have heard of Be Kind Rewind, right? The YouTube channel. Yeah. I went and I watched the Ida Lupina and, uh, Ida Lupino, pardon me, and Barbara Streisand episode and how they basically like there's no way that Barbara Streisand went and directed Yentl and it's like the audacity of it all too and it's not I mean that she didn't direct it but if she did it she was greedy because she had to also write it and she had to produce it and she had to star in it and she had to be the center of attention Barbara but it's like how many other men have already done the exact same thing to not not as great a standard as Yentl and yes I will fight about it Yentl's amazing yeah I love Yentl Yentl is um Yentl I think it's Yentl is shockingly the only movie directed by a woman to ever win um, Best Director at the Golden Globes in like 19. Yes. Which is yeah. nuts. Like you, but yeah, it's still that we're in 2020 and that that statistic still holds pretty crazy. I mean, it's a good everybody movie. got. It is a really good movie. And I mean, and people still got salty at Natalie Portman for saying, here are the all-male nominees. She was right, and she said it. You know? <laughs> like, I'm sorry that Natalie Portman is not going to be, like, your quiet little, like, whatever anymore. She's tired. Let her rest, you know? <laughs> well, and I think um, it's so weird to me because they're – I understand why people were mad. There was like this weird mini backlash about, uh, I mean, who can remember the beginning of this year, but at the beginning of the year, there was this weird mini backlash against Natalie Portman talking about women directors because Uh they thought she hadn't worked with uh, women directors that much herself. But as someone with like a weird obsessive personality who tracks these things, she's actually tried. Like she has a really weird track record of trying and then failing to work with women on projects so like it's one of those things where she is trying to put her money where her mouth is and unfortunately just like uh she's had a couple of quite high profile train wrecks that where it just hasn't panned out 
Yeah, didn't that happen with Patty Jenkins in like For the Dark World or something? Yeah, she tried to, she um, really pushed very, very hard for, uh, she said she'd only come back to the Thor sequel if there was a woman director attached. They got Patty Jenkins attached and then she dropped out. And then by that point, uh, Emily Portman was committed, so. I think like that's one of the things that, and again, like, I say this from like my shiny ivory tower too, but like, but when I look at the Hollywood industry, it seems to be that there are always, there's so many moving pieces and to make a film. Um, and also like the power dynamics too, because it's true. Once you might have an agreement, but if somebody drops out, but you, it's like, I've already committed and I signed the contract or it's like something else has happened, this, that, and the other, like, it's always there's more always underneath the surface and any of us really want to go and like give like allowance for like Natalie Portman hasn't worked with as many female directors. Natalie Portman would probably also agree with that. But Natalie Portman can also go and be just as understandably upset that women are not getting as many opportunities as they should to direct. Like both of these things can coexist. For sure. But I mean, I think this was more like a minor Twitter brouhaha and it's like harder to yeah. discuss things on Twitter, mm-hmm. or, you know, and people have short memories. I mean, I only I, I wrote like a mini thread on it and people were even reminding me of like different other projects she dropped out of. So it was like there's a history there. I totally but, forgot that that happened like earlier in this year, though. I That's like I forgot that Parasite won this year, too. I was like, well, that was this year. <laughs> What are you talking about? <laughs> Surely yeah. not. Yeah. So um, going back a bit, going back to Sofia Coppola. So after um, the success of The Virgin Suicides, she decided that she was going to write. Um, she wanted to make actually Marie Antoinette into a film. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's actually it's interesting because this is the story I've always heard that that was supposed to be her next project after um, yeah but I was I was trying to look it up and it seems like a lot of references to that have been scrubbed and I don't know like maybe it's just you know not everything always survives on the internet so the the interviews have died but that's what I've always heard I I read that too, and I saw that on TV Tropes, actually, because I always go and look up TV Tropes whenever I watch a movie, and yeah, I don't know if it has since, I, I couldn't find anything else, and I combed through a bunch of Sofia Coppola interviews over the past week, being like, so what were you saying at this time, Sofia? So, no. Um, but no, and then she went and she wrote, but either way, we then got lost in translation. So yeah, she um the story is that she got writer's block while trying to um write Marie Antoinette, which she uh adopt adapted from um a biography written by Antonia Fraser. So mm-hmm. in to sort of break up her writer's block, she wrote uh Lost in Translation. She filmed Lost in Translation, and that was basically a huge success that I mean it's hard to understate even at this time what a huge success it was for her yep like that movie that what it meant for women directors in general because the early 2000s were like a terrible time for women directors I mean in the mainstream Mm -hmm. I mean even I was younger at that time and I remember Lost in Translation being like the bee's knees 
big deal. And at the time, I was like, I don't really care about this movie. Like, la di da di da. But now looking back, it's a, you could, there was definitely so much significance around it. And I think even the fact that for what she got nominated for, she did get nominated for Best Director. But then also winning, like, yeah. And then didn't she, she did win an Oscar for that film though, did she? Am I remembering correctly? uh, She won Best Screenplay, Best Original. Okay. Legit, legit. I mean, it's a, um, it's. mm -hmm. Sorry, I'm just laughing at you saying legit. Sorry, I mean, I think it's, I mean, it's better than saying um every five seconds, which is my uh, normal uh, speech pattern, along with uh, quite often, or mm, so I'm doing, (laughs) but anyways, no, I think I honestly, though, okay, maybe this is like the controversial moment of the podcast episode not me going and saying we shouldn't care about the female gaze as much as we do uh and that i actually didn't really like sofia coppola as a director for a really long time <laughs> that's okay i don't um, like the virgin suicides that's my hot take um fair enough i saw i think that- the trailer's much better <laughs> I'm really lucky in that my mom was always like, um, my mom's a huge film buff and she would yeah. always bring like whatever was, you know, the sun, had won awards at Sundance or whatever was like the indie flavor of the year. So I definitely watched The Virgin Suicides as a kid. And then uh, because Lost in Translation was so huge, I definitely watched um, Lost in Translation probably on VHS. That's a throwback. And when it when it came out, not in the theaters. And um, I didn't realize, I mean, when you're young, I guess you're not paying as much attention. You're like, so a woman direct, so what? But she was the first woman director to be nominated for an Oscar since Jane Campion, like a decade earlier in the early 90s. Yep. Yeah, that was for the piano, right? Yep. I love the piano, by the way. I also like, actually... Oh my god, one of my favorite films of all time. If you don't like the piano, I'm like, I'm sorry. I don't know what to do with you. I mean, we can have a relationship, but it's not going to have the depth that we could have had now because you don't like the piano. 100%. That's the way I feel whenever somebody says they don't like the piano. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not that hardcore Uh, on the piano, but I do. I I saw it. um, That was one I think I was too young for it when I I was definitely too young for it when it came out so like I I, that was something I watched later on when I was like oh maybe I should when I found out there were only like I mean see this is so crazy when I started really paying attention to women directors which was not that long ago there were only Uh three women directors who had ever been nominated for best director at the Oscars and I was like well I, I guess I'll watch all three. So I took, I had already seen Lost in Translation. So I watched the other two, which was The Piano and uh, Seven Beauties. And I loved both of them. But like, that's so, how crazy it is. And I mean, it's 2020. There have been what, over 90 years of Oscars. And there are now only um, five women who have ever been nominated. And only one of them has won. It's, yep. It's and so we're not even that great of a movie either. <laughs> Sorry, I'm also, I'm not a big fan of The Hurt Locker either. No, but I just like think going back to Lost in Translation, and I think, um, I, when it, 
going back to Lost in Translation and my lack of interest in it when I was younger, that was before I really like underst like not to go and sound like a pretentious film snob, but like truly, unless you have an appreciation and like some knowledge going in of like, okay, this is how cinematography functions. This is what lighting can go and do. This is what like sharp editing or cut like cuts all of that type of stuff there's her work operates at a level of sophistication that you think nothing's happening when really so much is happening on the screen because I think particularly for Coppola like she really takes film like up to like its ultimate peak because film's an audio visual medium Mm-hmm. So it's like, let's just go and rely so like solely on visual audio is not going to be about narrativizing. It's just going to be about accentuating the visuals when need be. And I think that I, I didn't appreciate that about her as a director until I got a bit older. I started going and actually doing like proper film studies too. Cause I mean, that's like, even when I read, um, like I went and <laughs> Because I am that person, I went and I reread my MRP like a couple years ago just to see what it was really like. And I was like, you know, because of you don't use like formal film language, Julia, this is not that good. Plus also it's like you're unable to fully really get at what Coppola is trying to do in your analysis. This is why film studies matter. (laughs) Like you need to do it properly. I have I have thoughts on that. And but yeah, no, I'll stop now. <laughs> <laughs> well, just to talk about my initial first impressions of um, Lost in Translation, I definitely liked it when I saw it. And I think, I don't think I had a huge cinematic education that came after that, like in my teens, mm-hmm. I, was, I, I was fully invested in becoming like a cinematic nerd who watched like those classic European films that in quote quotes like nothing happens like I love those yeah you know where things oh, start out and only get worse like those are my, it's, my favorite it's um, like it's like the way how Stromboli becomes your comfort watch or it's like ah oh, it's Sunday afternoon I'm gonna watch Rome Open City or Persona like let's just do that it'll be fun yeah 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 I'm like that person who's like let's watch Jean Diamant again and like feel really feel depressed and like Exactly. Yes, exactly. But like, I I think I was fortunate in that um I had already seen some of those movies, so like I I did appreciate Lost in Translation when it happened. It's not to say like nothing happens, but I guess for more like typical mainstream American fare, it definitely is a movie where less happens in that movie. But it's charming. It was very charming. I did like it. But uh, yeah. To move on a bit, we did the the huge success of Lost in Translation is basically what uh, led to Marie Antoinette, and it mm-hmm. um, it totally revamped what the movie was supposed to be. And I'm not sure it was actually interesting while I was re- researching this. Um, while I was researching Marie Antoinette, I had it in my head that it was made at Sony because um, I knew that Amy Pascal greenlit it. And she's someone I so associate with uh, Sony because I think she's the co-chair or something. She was the person basically who greenlit uh, movies, but it's actually like um, a Columbia Pictures movie. 
And she's the one who greenlit Marie Antoinette. And so it's um, it was done at a major studio. It's still the only Coppola film that she ever did for a major studio. And uh. it's really interesting to watch. You know, it, it's always interesting to watch what directors do after they've had like this huge, huge success, like with Oscars or critical success, mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. it's usually where they can be um, the most wild and the most free. So it's yes. very interesting to watch Marie Antoinette in that light and know that that's what you did with it. True. I mean, I have, is this, is this a portion of the podcast where we move into talking about the film um, more, like more on point? Cause I have yeah, thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I have, I think the thing about like Marie Antoinette as a film is that I think it's interesting seeing how like the tone and the the discussion around it has really changed. Like now it's been reappraised as a lot better than, and I think like the thing is, is that I remember seeing that film in theaters because like full on confession, uh, Marie Antoinette, the historical figure is like my ultimate problematic fave. <laughs> like she is my Scorpio LARPing walking disaster. And I love her. She was a mess, but I love her. So I definitely went into the theater. I was like, I'm going to watch this Marie Antoinette movie. And it's going to be so much fun. And it's going to be great. And I remember leaving it as like a fan and actually of like the and really interested in the history itself and actually like having an appreciation for what Coppola was doing in that film and trying to doing um and then when I like rewatched it which by the way for Canadians it's currently streaming on CTV which fun fact because I couldn't find my DVD at all and then I just watched it on CTV which was amazing um and so in watching it again i still appreciate what coppola was trying to do filmically i do think that there are some things though now we're like hmm i don't know necessarily but i think at the same time like the things that people got mad at about that movie are such non-issues and there are things that maybe we should have been a bit mad at that we didn't get mad at that's just sort of like my intro thought on marie antoinette the film well, yeah, let's let's talk about that because I too, I unfortunately, unlike you, did not see it in um in theaters because well, basically what happened was it premiered it in competition at Cannes. And it was uh it's was the first Sofia Coppola to film to premiere in competition. Um it's like a Cannes is a huge film festival, you know, her mm-hmm. father won the top prize there. It's like a huge honor to premiere there. And the reception for the film was not great. People did not like it. It got a lot of mixed reviews. And looking back, I actually looked at what it scored um, on Metacritic, which is, it's a Metacritic is a review aggregator site. And um, I find it more effective than Rotten Tomatoes. And it's so Mm -hmm. funny because it scored in the 60s. And I usually find like things that movies that score in the 60s are kind of like the ones I end up loving the most because it usually means that the filmmaker was trying something a bit unusual. So some people hate it and some people really loved it. And that's why it ends up with that kind of 
mediocre score. And um, totally. The but when it Marie Antoinette finally came out after the Cannes premiere, it, it because Columbia Pictures was releasing it because their major film studio, they released it sort of um as a wide release and it really just was not a financial success like at all people did not like it and I remember at the time that was not a movie I was particularly interested in my only I don't know if you remember this but like I didn't know a lot about Marie Antoinette and basically the only thing I remember would have known about her at the time is that she was a French queen she was beheaded and they also used her in these McCain commercials to sell cake. Do you remember that? I do remember that. Yeah, yeah. I do remember like, that. There was this actress who was dressed up as Marie Antoinette and they would serve his, her this like frozen dessert from McCain's. I always really wanted one. I never got to eat one. My mom was like, no, that's not good for you. But they looked so good. And she was like, let them eat cake. You know, that, that famous thing that she didn't actually say. So mm-hmm, yeah, I totally, mm-hmm. and that, at that point I wasn't like a fan of Coppola either. I'd seen The Virgin Suicides, which I didn't like. I had seen Lost in Translation, which I did like, but I wasn't like committed, you know? So that's also yeah. why I skipped out on it, which um, when I finally did watch the movie years later, I was just like, oh no, I wish I'd seen this on the big screen because like, it's a very, um, you can tell that Sofia Coppola had money. Like she really... They they shot it at Versailles. I think mm-hmm. they were the first um, Marie Antoinette, or they. I think they're the first production to ever do it. To to shoot yeah, they there. were the first American production. One of those. I mean, they're like the French are pretty precious, ironically now about Versailles because yeah. understandably a lot of tourists come there too, but also like. I remember, like, there was, like, a Vogue shoot there, too. I still have a copy of that magazine of, like, Kristen Dunst in these absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous, like, modern uh, couture gowns over, like, all around the Palace of Versailles. And she looked absolutely amazing. Um, I have yeah, to no, say, like, it was I, a- I remember that photo shoot, too. If you, if people want to Google it, um, she, Kristen Dunst is on the cover in her full Marie Antoinette costume. And a lot of um, a lot of pictures from that whole like behind the scenes shoot went viral, and people. It's so funny. People still, I still see people like reblogging them to this day, because. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, I was just gonna say like totally like that. That film's visuals left like an indelible mark on people, and I think for a very good reason. Like it's just like it's sumptuous. Like, it's a beautiful film, even, like, in stills. Another thing I have to say, looking back at and and talking about the stills and looking back on sort of the Vogue cover and all the other stuff, I think it's such a tragedy to me that the film didn't find its audience then. And people were really, Mm -hmm. people were really persnickety about it. But I can see through the visuals and through, like, the marketing and through what Sofia Coppola was doing it, like, I so understood her. And she, you can tell she really understood her tone. And she was so sure of what she was going for. Because, I mean, if you think about it, Marie Antoinette came out in 2006. She was obviously working on it for a few years. But the sort of gold standard, if you think about, like, the 90s, were these kind of, like, 
staid period pieces where, you know, very conventional. They had everyone speaking. Um, if they were about Europe, but not English, they had people speaking in British accents, whether they were British or not. Always like mm-hmm. the classical music, you know, that sort of. Yeah. There was like a very definite sort of like BBC idea of the kind of like thing they wanted to do. Like yeah, the kind like, of way they wanted period pieces to appear. Yeah, like the merchants and ivories, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. dangerous liaisons, which is a great film. Like these are all like really great films. Um, but you're right, like very conventional and like a very strict rule book about what like period pieces are supposed to be. And it's like Sofia Coppola, like from the like the opening. Uh, like totally is like n- nope I refuse I'm going to do something different uh, I have a question could I do like that nerdy thing and read from something oh absolutely I love that <laughs> okay so uh, this is a book that I actually really do enjoy it's called it's royal portraits in Hollywood filming the lives of queens um, it was co-written by Elizabeth Ford and Deborah C. Mitchell and so Uh, They quote, many films open with an establishing shot that announces the time, place, and mood. In contrast, Marie Antoinette's first image is a disestablishing shot. After Kristen Dunst's name appears in the credits, hot pink against a black background, a scantily dressed queen, half reclining on a chaise, appears. Um, A maid adjusts her shoes while the queen swipes her fingers for the pink frosting on the cake next to her. She turns and looks knowingly at the audience. I'm exactly who you expected to see, right? She seems to say. But this isn't the real Marie Antoinette, nor is she uh, the one that Kristen Dunst plays in the film. Coppola calls this image the evil fantasy queen. An anachronism underscores her evil false identity. And it's not the lady in waiting who adjusts her shoes, but a maid. And this maid wears a costume different from all the other servants glimpsed in the background of lush interiors. The credits continue after this 30-second shot. The film's real opening shot presents a perfectly balanced contrast, an unanticipated view of the queen. Anyways, I just think that I I really like that quote because it really sums up everything. And I think that that opening, like that disestablishing shot, and I love that phrase. Oh, me is too. Great. That was wonderful. Like... And I just, I vividly remember my reaction being like, oh my God, when like I saw that on like the big screen, because it really is, it's great. And it's just like, it's complete silence, but it says absolutely everything. And you have Gang of Four playing too as well, but like the lyrics, like the problems of leisure is like what to do for pleasure. And it's just, it's everything. I love it. And it's such a like, it's like a little wink to the audience, right? Which is another thing like I don't think Coppola ever quite gets enough credit for is she's quite a funny director. Like um, this, mm-hmm. to get off uh, Marie Antoinette for a while, I remember The Beguile didn't exactly like get the warmest reception either. But I remember that one thing I found really, really weird were there were reviews where they were calling it like... um 
oh, well, now I forget the word, but they were sort of like, oh, I don't know why it's it, like the, the tone they didn't quite understand, but I'm like, no, she's, she's trying to be funny. Like, you know? Yeah. She, and it's like a- something that crops up like in Marie Antoinette and other, like other parts of her work. It's not exactly laugh out loud funny, but there are clearly moments where she's like, you know, she's winking at the audience. She's having fun. Exactly. And I think that like Coppola takes like the work seriously, but she's not taking like her role as a director seriously. Like obviously like she takes her role as a director seriously. She's a very professional person, but like she's willing to go and be like, let you in on the joke a bit. And I think that like her thoughtfulness towards the audience is like really like misunderstood sometimes like i thought the beguiled was really funny like i saw that in theaters and and sometimes i was the only one laughing it was so awkward (laughs) i mean and i think the thing is it's like it's because she's not overly concerned about like upholding genre because there are sometimes i'm like okay she's clearly going after classic horror tropes like there's a lot of like meta, like she's really leaning here on like this imagery, isn't she, folks? But I mean, she's it's tongue in cheek, right? Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that about her as a director. Um, and I think that it sh- like it shows a level of like thoughtfulness and cleverness too. I think it's a little more obvious to me that she's trying to be funny in um, Marie Antoinette just from who she casts. Like uh, Molly mm-hmm. Shannon, who is known oh as a God, yeah. comedic, um, a com- I mean, she's a comedic actress. She shows up as one of the ants and she just like kills it. She's having, a- you can tell she's having a lot of fun. And that's, I think that's another thing that um, people were a bit shocked by and didn't quite like, you know, because going back to like the 90s, those serious merchant ivory sort of period pieces, I mean, Hollywood is so weird sometimes you know they don't like to cast people outside of certain roles so to cast this like actress who's primarily known for SNL in this movie about like you know Marie Antoinette it signals something right away like to see her in that that period piece 100% but I think like that also really showed that like Coppola had at least I don't know about like all of the historical figures, but she definitely had like an understanding of like who these people like if they were basically like acting in a play of their life, like what type of role would they take? And like Victoire and Sophie, like they were the king's unmarried sisters. They did have their little dogs. They were a bit ridiculous and they were catty and gossipy. They were terrible, but they were also amazing. So why wouldn't she want to go and have somebody who knows how to go and act like that? Like, lean into it. I have to say, the entire cast is, like, truly fantastic. And it, I mean, it says something about Sofia Coppola that she's able to get all these incredible directors. I mean, this is where, like, the nepotism thing really comes into play in the best possible way. Because oh, yeah, I mean, you can enjoy the film if you just watch the film and you're like, oh, well, that like background person is really great. But they're so if you're like a film buff like me and you watch way too many films, you will like mm-hmm. basically everyone, even the people who have tiny background roles, even people who are like have one line 
are um, people with very illustrious careers that she's casting. 100%. Uh, 100%. I'm thinking of uh, the other Aunt Sophia, Shirley Henderson, who's this great British actress who I feel never gets enough credit. I think most people know her from Harry Potter, but she's done like, she's a truly great actress who shows up in I... things. I love her. Um, I also think like she's really beautiful too uh, and never gets enough credit for that. Although that's like not, you know what I mean by that. No, no, I um, totally know what you mean. Cause like some actresses get cast as like, you know, super beautiful people all the time. But for some reason, even though she is attractive, she gets cast in like weird dowdy roles. It's very strange. Exactly. Even though like she's like, I went and I saw like she uh, like, it was on like YouTube where like she was doing like this like one woman show thing. I saw like a couple of years ago and she was just absolutely radiant. I was like, this woman is leading lady quality. Come she on, really people. Is. She really is. Um, <sighs> another one I really liked is Marianne Faithful is plays uh, Kirsten Dunst. Well, Mary Antoinette's mom, which is yeah, really, it's a real kick to see her there. Uh, yeah, Jamie no. Dornan. This is so funny because I actually remember when Jamie Dornan was cast. I mean, now everyone knows him from Fifty Shades of Grey, but at the time, it was like, oh, Kira Knightley's model boyfriend is going to be in a Sofia Coppola movie. Legit. And that's like how even freaking Tom Hardy shows up too. <laughs> and he brings the oysters. <laughs> yeah. I remember, I'm like, oh my god, it's baby Tom Hardy. He's so young, fresh-faced. Yeah, I think it's really funny. So you have, like, this mix of, like, people with, like, really strong careers who only have, like, a t- few tiny lines. And then she got, I think she just cast hot guys for, like, the hot guys, which is a choice I respect. Legit. And I mean... I think, but one thing can I just say, though, in terms of, like, casting of men, I love Jason Schwartzman, but he really doesn't do, like, Louis the Sixteenth justice, like, at all. Yeah, I I'm like, and I... The thing that people didn't like at the time, and I have to agree, I didn't like him okay. either. Here's the thing, too, it's like, okay, Louis the Sixteenth. he was, like, six foot three, he was, like, super built as well. Like, there's this whole thing, like, oh, he was, like, really fat. It's like, no, he ate a lot, which, you know, is a choice. But, like, he hunted all the time, and he was a locksmith. Like, that's all he did is he was in a forge all day. Like, he was just, like, this really tall nerd who didn't know how to talk to anybody at all. And I don't think that Jason Schwartzman did him justice, like, at all. Even though I, I love Jason Schwartzman. I like him too. And I, I think that she gave, Sophia Coppola gave him the role because he's her cousin. <laughs> like, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, I don't think that's yeah, enough thing that backfired. But um, yeah, he, he was just, I have to say though, like I remember when I first watched it, I didn't like his casting choice. And, um, but when I, I actually read all of Antonia Fraser's biography before I oh hell it. yeah yeah that's the kind of nerd i am and um if it makes you feel oh i just want to go and say if we're dropping antonia fraser references i have the book like right next to me right now 
I'm telling you, like, I love, I'm, I'm, like, I am a Rantoinette's bitch. Like, she's looking down for me from wherever she is, and she's like, this motherfucker, why does she like me so much? I'm like, Marie, I can't explain it. I just really love you. But I think that, like, based on the, like, Antonia Fraser's description of him is, like, that shy, fat nerd I think Jason Schwartzman, like, I understand the cast, I understand what he's doing in the movie more. Like, yeah. I, I made my peace with it, basically. It's not something I loved initially, but now I'm like, okay. You know, and it's not exactly like, like, Sofia Coppola plays fast and loose with, like, a few things. You know, she's not exactly, she's oh, 100%. Story, but she's also saying other things with it, you know? Yeah, and I mean, I think... I think like that's the one thing too where it's like as I said earlier I I don't care that she's playing post-punk music or anything like that or like more contemporary stuff I think that like who cares about that who cares that there are converse in the background of a shot like that's cute tongue-in-cheek trying to go and create like a yeah exactly this is not a um, blooper like she did that on purpose this isn't like a Game of Thrones Starbucks coffee cup. Like, yeah. it's not one of those types of things. Um, but there are, I think that there were some things, though, where it's like, because, like, it's a it's interesting because it's also, it's a period piece, but with very little historical context, though, which is always interesting to me. And I think that in some ways she's successful with that, but in other ways she's not. and like oh sorry go ahead no go ahead totally well I was just gonna say I agree with you and that's probably one of the reasons why I enjoyed it so much when I watched it like no context years after it had come out because you don't have to know the history to like it and I was reminded mm-hmm. of this as I was re-watching it. Because it's so funny. I've read the book, I read the Antonia Fraser book, and it makes things like a lot clearer in the timeline. And you realize that there's um the film takes place over about 20 years, which is pretty shocking. Yep. And like the timeline's also very weird. Like over an hour of the movie is takes place over four years. And then there's yep. like 10 years collapsed in like a short amount of time. But mm-hmm. what I was reminded of is like when I was rewatching it is like you don't really have to know the history behind it to enjoy it. And what it really reminds me of so much and what it really feels like all the time is like this very beautiful, very popular girl in high school, you know? Yep. That's and a great way to put it. Especially, I think it's what really drove that home is when um, Marie Antoinette is only 18, her, the grandfather king, Louis the 15th, I think, dies. Yes. And they're coronated. So, and when you see them, like, in these crowns, it's like the prom queen, right? That's mm-hmm. so much. And I really think that's another reason why the casting of Kirsten Dunst was so brilliant, because she is so well-known for, you know those wholesome high school movies she did like bring it on you know and she always has this smile and in real life she was a cheerleader at school and she sort of 
she sort of brings that quality to that to the movie. It's a very interesting dynamic. 100%. I think that totally like a homecoming king and queen, prom queen, but also it's like she is I think like cuz I think the thing about Marie Antoinette, like, in the film, which is really interesting, is that she, like, never really grows up. Obviously, it's like, what do you do when you're a teenager and, like, your parents give you a really nice allowance? Nine times out of ten, you just spend all your money, right? And you hang out with your friends and, like, you go off to, like, the mall or you go to the opera or, you know, all those types of things. So, like, she lives this really like heightened but really aimless existence but at the same time though like it's deeply infantilizing too right like she has to get up and get dressed like a child every single day and get like humiliated and watched by like people every single like constantly monitored right which well, you know the only the whole thing with like her sex life is very public where i mean yes this is, really bad. This is actually um like accurate to what happened but her mother knew that like about her sex life with her husband and that they weren't having sex and like the entire court was aware of that as well and her pregnancy and her menstruation were topics of discussion like open discussion which you know i just want to say two things like on one hand yeah it's like the 1770s but at the same time she's freaking 15 years old and he's 16 years old they maybe shouldn't be having sex just yet family they had sex at an age appropriate time after they got to know each other and after louis probably got his penis fixed like i think that it's like she's so young and it's terrible oh it's awful it's really sad like, really and sad. i think like and I think that's one of the things where it's like, like the real turning point in the film, like for in terms of like her personal narrative is when they go to the mask ball in Paris. And that's when first and first sees her. And the thing is, is like, he doesn't recognize her, but the thing is like, he treats her like she's in a grown woman that she is desirable as a person, not just as a broodmare. And that, like, he's not telling her what to do or anything. Like, he treats her like an adult. And I think, like, that being, like, when she really then starts to come into her own is such an interesting choice, I think, that Coppola made, right? Mm -hmm. Because, like, we literally were seeing, like, the past hour just how she's infantilized, how she's poked and she's prodded, how she's talked about all these things, which were true. And then she starts to be able to assert herself in some ways and start to have a little bit more agency and reject certain like court norms. Louis, like she and Louis have sex. They have their daughter, Marie Therese Charlotte. He's like, here, like go to like the, the, the Petit Trianon, go and have like your happy little place escape. You know, you deserve your own space, which great husband material, by the way, right there. Like, hello, wife. I really love you. Have like this beautiful like place that you can go and hide away and not have to have anybody you don't want there. What a concept. And so like, just like that shift, I love it. And I think Coppola and then like the aesthetic changes that go and take place then in terms of costuming and everything in Maison scene is really well done. Yeah. It's so beautiful. Just going back to what you said about 
Um, Marie Antoinette meeting Frozen at the ball. I just think, once again, I think that moment, the pace of it, and the two actors, Kirsten Dunst and um, Jamie Dornan, who plays Kent Frozen, it's just such a romantic, flirty, you know, teasing, Mm -hmm. beautiful scene between two people. And you can... You can tell they're supposed to be young people at a party. It really humanizes Marie Antoinette. It really, it really makes you feel like remember that she's a teenager at this point. It's so lovely, 100%. and I think that's one of the things that I find so endearing about the movie and why I enjoy it so much. Because you're just reminded over and over again that she's like, she's a kid in a lot of senses, and like a lot of the things she's doing, maybe she made bad choices. But in a lot of the scenes, she's a teenager making mistakes, just making like really high cost, terrible mistakes in front of lots and lots and lots of people. Exactly. She's basically going through like her college phase, except her college phase is completely funded by taxpayer money and is way over the top. But she's not thinking about all of her student debt because she doesn't have debt. What are you talking about? Um, to go back to the costumes a bit, what the only Academy Award this got was, well, the only nomination and the only win it got was for Best Achievement in Costume Design by um, Milena Cananero, who also did, I think she did the costumes for Barry Lyndon as well. Not she did. Okay, yeah. So she, she has like, um, oh, and a Clockwork Orange, so... You know, she has a lot of really great films under her belt. And of course, the shoes, not the Converse's, but uh, the very beautiful shoes you see were made by um, Manolo Blahnik. Of freaking course. (laughs) I I was so lucky. Um, I got dragged to the Baden Shoe Museum, which I didn't even want to go to. (laughs) They were having a bit on Manolo Uh Blahnik a couple of years ago and I got to see some of the the Marie Antoinette shoes in real life uh, so I, like, I, w- oh, I cool. got to go- I went to that exhibit too I freaking love that museum so much it's like whenever it's like oh I want to go to like Toronto like where should I go I'm like you gotta go to the shoe museum it's so good it is very good I recommend it if you go now I mean I don't know if it's open now because of COVID, but if you go in a safer time when you've been vaccinated and it is open, I highly recommend it. I mean, they won't have the Marie Antoinette shoes because that was a special exhibit, but it's still very much worth it to go. 100%. Yeah, no, I, I really love the, the costumes. I think like Kirsten Dunst wears like 56 or so, or like, it's like 56. I think I wrote it down. Yeah, like 56 separate costumes in this film. And like they're all sumptuous and they're all glorious. And I think that they're also like they're all obviously like really well made. But I think the thing too is that I love when costumes are used to tell character moments and are really like fully like utilize like to like their ultimate purpose which is to also tell story and I think that this film does a really good job even with like I think about um 
when she first comes uh, to France, like meet the family, like they're all in blue. Like she and everybody's in blue except for Louis. He's the odd man out in his red coat. So I think even just being like, oh, let's go and like literally have like a visual distinction about he is like the he is opposite of his family. And, like, have that be there for you as the audience. I thought that was great. Like, I just, I love that. I loved it, too. I love that they dressed um, Madame Dubelli in purple. Mm-hmm. Like, so, but I, it's so funny that you said the costumes were sumptuous. Because that is literally what you mentioned when you were starting to talk about how great they were. Sumptuous was, like, the first word that comes to mind. So beautiful. and. I mean, Coppola, if there's one sort of beef I do have with the movie, it's that, I mean, she is telling the story, a very specific story about a young teenage girl. So when it comes to like the later parts of Marie Antoinette's life, she compresses about 10 years into maybe like 20 minutes and you kind of feel the punch. But I do love how you see her adopting like the more paired down looks like you know she sort of gets rid of all the fancy stuff and she's more sorry go ahead no but then that's like I think about how apparently in the script there's supposed to be a voiceover about how she's not what she's wearing muslin and cotton and not wearing french silks anymore and I wish that that line had been like kept in um because that was such a huge controversy about Marie Antoinette. Like, do you remember, okay, do you know, like, the Marie Antoinette portrait of, like, her and, like, the dress, like, and the robe on Gaul? She's in, like, this white dress. It's, like, she's in a straw hat. She's carrying, like, she has a rose and everything, but it's, like, this white yeah, yeah. cotton dress. Yeah. So that portrait was painted by her female portrait art um artist uh marie Antoinette patronized mostly women painters because she thought that was really important fun fact um and then that was a huge controversy not only because they thought that to go and see such an esteemed person wearing like essentially like peasant garb slash her underwear in public but she was wearing like basically like indian cotton and how, like, that was just not supporting French trades at all. So that, the portrait that we then go and see being brought out about, like, Queen of Debt and everything, like, when she's wearing a blue dress, that was actually the appeasement picture that was painted then to be, like, the proper one. Like, that was her capitulation to everybody being upset with her for having that other portrait painted. So I was just like, I remember like seeing, I'm like, oh no, it's the wrong, it's not the controversial one. This is the capitulation painting. Everyone does this. So yeah, that was my little tangent about that painting. No, I I really like that. If you if you want to find out more, I mean, the the half hour goes by so quickly, you know, that that compressed ten years that I really recommend if you find the movie interesting, but you want to know a bit more about Marie Antoinette, definitely read the book because Antonia goes, I mean, I, I, while I was reading, I was sort of looking at how much of the book Coppola covered and she only uses about 250 pages of what's more like a 450 page book. 
So there's there's mm-hmm. quite a lot of detail, you know, that uh Yeah. I mean, of course no, you can't shove everything into a film. You couldn't even shove everything into a miniseries. But I'm just saying like it's oh, no. material. It's it's very interesting. But I think like that's one of the things about like film and like the choices that you have to go and make when trying to go and adapt somebody's life. And I wonder sometimes if maybe like Coppola might have bit off a bit more than like she could chew in the sense that wanting to show like a like such a span of time might have been a bit more counterproductive instead of having like a really clear like this is like the first like immediate days when she's at Versailles and then these are like the last days when she's at Versailles and then like so like what are like now like the contrasted differences like between here or it's like the film Jackie all it really covers is like an entire like one week but it's a really like succinct like uh, not like uh, succinct isn't good but it's a really illuminating portrait of a woman or it's like oh gosh um like the Elizabeth movie too that came out in like t- was it 2000 I think the um, like, came out in I think the the first one came out in the 90s I think like okay um, but it's like again, like these like sh- like shorter periods of time to go and get in. I think a little bit more, and I wonder like maybe because I think like that's the thing about the film is that the pacing gets really skewed, especially to like your point where like it's ten years and twenty minutes, and it's like whoa, how did we get from here to here? Like what did I miss? You know. And I think that that really, like, does what the film was doing overall a real disservice in a way. I will say, though, a couple of points. I I think that, um, I think that that whole, like, you know, slice of life to tell basically the whole story of a person is something that became much more popular in, like, the 2010s. Like, if you... Oh, 100%. I, I totally with you, but if you're just looking at, like, the sort of you know the period where Coppola was making it I don't know if she necessarily maybe that's the way it started but she sort of like couldn't quite envision like going that way you know just doing such a short time period of Marie Antoinette's life and I also I mean there was also probably studio pressure and then Mm -hmm. a final thing I really do think it ironically has one of like the best endings I've ever seen like that that and I think maybe she just wanted to get to that ending and you needed those like 10 years and 30 minutes to get to the ending which is this this beautiful beautiful part where they um the family is being forced from Versailles to relocate to Paris and uh she um her and her husband who have now reached this point in their marriage and their lives where they're much more calmer and settled and care about each other much more they get in the carriage mm-hmm. and they're looking out at this beautiful place. And he's saying, are you admiring your Lime Avenue? And she says, I'm saying goodbye. And then you get that beautiful shot, final shot of her, um, her bedroom with the chandelier smashed down. And it's just so, touching Oh yeah. Cause you know, like she's such a famous figure and you know, what's going to happen to her. So Uh I think, you know, in the end, I do think, however she got there, I think it's justified. 
Oh no, like I when you were talking about it, I closed my eyes and it was just like running for like the like behind my eyelids. It was just like, oh, it's so beautiful. And like the sun's like there. It's perfectly lit and everything. And she just has uh Kristen Dunst is able to do so much with her face and like just like her line delivery too. Everything about it was beautiful. I think she's just it's it's really crazy to me because, you know, she's one of those actresses who's quite famous, but she it's astonishing to me that she's never gotten Oscar buzz or doesn't even have an Oscar because she's worked with some really great directors and she is so talented. You know, I I watch so many films and she really shines in them. She there's a magnetic quality to her and she's very expressive. So I hope that eventually she's appreciated with awards. I mean, obviously she has a great career, but throw the woman an Oscar nomination. I mean, I'm working on a chapter on melancholia and high life right now. Mm. And I was rewatching it. I was just like, everything. I was like, how did she not get the Oscar this year? I don't understand. She wasn't nominated. She she got very... I know surprisingly few nominations for that role even though like and like Laura's Ron Trier is like a piece of shit but that movie's a masterpiece for a reason <laughs> yeah Ugh. so just to wrap up I guess we'll talk a bit about what happened after Melly Antoinette which is that um it's the only movie Coppola directed for a studio for a reason I think she really didn't like it even though I, I mean, like the movie, I think she didn't like the process. Maybe not the end result. I think she's proud of the end result, you know? Oh, yeah. Totally. I think, and I think also the one thing, too, is, like, there's there's a reason why you hear repeatedly uh, in interviews, like, it does, it's not even just Coppola, but other women or other, like, like it doesn't really matter who you are. When, like, when you're doing a studio production, you are wholly at the whims of what they ultimately want in the end. And what they want is to turn a profit and to go and make money. And I think for somebody like Coppola, who is such a specific type of director, being able to have, like, ultimate creative control would be, like, paramount. And I get that. Yeah. And she's able to have that. Her father runs a production company and she, um, they produce all her movies. So it's like, yeah, if you can get them produced. Keep it in-house. Yeah, exactly. Why wouldn't you do that? Man. She did briefly, and I'm so sad it didn't work out. She was briefly attached to an adaptation of The Little Mermaid for, I think, <gasps> I think Sony? Uh, so she's going to do... Oh, did you not know about that? I didn't know about that. It was the early 2010s. I was so excited. Everyone just assumed she was going to cast Elle Fanning as uh, the Little Mermaid because this was after Somewhere where they had already worked together. But apparently... Mm-hmm. This is so funny now. Because apparently what happened was, once again, she wanted a nepotism kid, but just not Elle Fanning. She wanted Maya Hawk who is Uma Thurman and um, Ethan Hawke's daughter. But at the time, she had never made a film, and the studio did not want to cast her 
And Sofia Coppola was like, well, I guess this just isn't working out. And it ended up crumbling. But oh, I just like, I would have loved a big budget Sofia Coppola Little Mermaid. I think, oh, I think um, Funny or Die, if you, if people want to Google it, Funny or Die, which is this parody site, did a mock version of like the trailer of what a Little Mermaid Sofia Coppola film would look like. And it's really, it's really funny. It's really silly. And um, it's also really speaks to how distinctive her style is that they were able 100%. to mock it so well, you know, it's quite cute. Yeah. Like I, I think like that's the one thing about Sofia Coppola is that she, like, she really does have such a strong visual style, but I think that unlike some directors that I can go and think of who have a visual style, she actually tries to do something different and interesting with each of her films. Unlike, let's say, I don't know, Quentin Tarantino, who's been making the exact same film his entire career. Uh, she at least does different things and is interested in exploring uh, different genres in, I think, really interesting ways, too. So, sorry, yeah. I had to get in my Quentin Tarantino job in there. So. Thank you. Um, I appreciate this. I understand. I think everyone who likes film and is not like a super enthusiastic, super enthusiastic Quentin Tarantino, Quentin Tarantino fan who has had to deal with the Quentin Tarantino bros understands what you mean. Yeah, like the only like film director who I'm like, yo, I will like I will like put up with his film bros only a little bit is David Fincher, but even then David Fincher hates David Fincher fans, which is great. So Oh, and speaking of Quentin Tarantino, he dated Sofia Coppola. There's what? Like, you didn't know that? No! What I don't go and read these people's Wikipedia. <laughs> no, I I just like I'm it's because I like gossip I, too, right? No, they do Okay, okay. I like they did it like 10 oh years ago or something. There was this huge controversy because, okay, so the next movie um, Sofia Coppola made after Marie Antoinette was somewhere in 2010. And it was yeah. presented at Venice and she won the Golden Lion, which is their top award. And everyone was really mad because Quentin, Tar- Quentin Tarantino was on the jury. And people were like, oh, he only is doing it because it's his ex-girlfriend. But I'm like... what? Uh, that's not how juries work, but all right, you know. I just want to go and say because I the only film bro that I knew she dated was and was married to was Spike Jones, which I'm really sorry for you, Sophia. Uh, because then, yeah, no, but I didn't know that about Quinn Tarantino. Oh my I'm god, that ex- I think they were were they dating when Mary Antoinette came out? Maybe I don't remember the exact period, but it was. Definitely after her marriage to Spike Jones, and before by the time Somewhere came out, they had already broken up. Okay, because all I know is that she is not. I just want to say, by the way, obviously she's much more than her personal life, but I'm pretty sure she is married to the frontman of Phoenix. Oh yeah, and I'm just like, I'm like, she has great taste in music, you know, and she also has gr- clearly like good taste in guys now because his band is amazing. <laughs> oh my gosh. 
All right. No. Okay. So to end on like not her personal life, I guess. Yes, <laughs> please. I was gonna say. I know. I was like, I feel kind of low key icky so now. Dirty. Sorry. But, um, just to talk about. So she she in 2010 she went on and she won the Golden Line for somewhere. Uh, in 2017, she won Best Director at Cannes for The Beguiled, and she was the first woman in something like 60 years, and I think only the second woman ever to win Best Director at Cannes, which is appalling, but there you go. Yep. And her, um, her latest film is came out this year with Rashida Jones and Bill Murray, and it's called On the Rocks. I saw it. I saw that in theaters. I saw that in theaters. Yeah, I saw my mom and my sister for my birthday because my local theater is like really small and it was literally just the three of us. And I I was deeply entertained and I I enjoyed it. Like there are some things that I wish like she again, like Sofia Coppola doesn't know how to deal with race and wouldn't know how to deal with race even it came up and hit her in the face. Um, and I think at the same time, though, it's interesting. I think it's because it was interesting going and seeing Bill Murray play that role. And I think it also was a weird commentary on the role he played in Lost in Translation, too. Because I think that there's a lot of misreading of that relationship in Lost in Translation. And I have thoughts on that. But we've already been talking for a while. So I won't share them now. (laughs) But yeah. Fun um, fact about On the Rocks that I learned um, well through reading. But apparently um, Rashida Jones was doing at an acting class. And Sofia Coppola showed up and she was like, can you guys workshop the script for Lost in Translation? So she like she played Charlotte in um oh and that's God. how they met at like an acting class. Isn't that funny? That is wild. I mean, oh man, Rashida Jones is another nepotism kid too. Everybody's a nepotism kid. And um, like the old boys club of Hollywood. <laughs> it's true. At this point, yeah. Several generations of nepotism kids. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, let's wrap up for real with our um, yes female film recommendations. So, do you want to give one first, or should I? It can be anything. It doesn't how about have to be a Coppola movie. How about you go first? Okay, so I'm not gonna recommend a Coppola film because we've been talking about her a lot. But I'm just gonna say that a movie I really loved this year that I don't think has gotten enough attention is Cajillionaire directed by Miranda yes Dallas. i'm not i see the funny thing is that i don't think a lot of people like it didn't get the attention i thought it would which was a little disappointing to me but also i mm-hmm. read this really really funny thing by this person who had seen the movie and they were like who is this film for they're like i hated it and i was like oh my god this film was for me like i absolutely loved it uh, Evan Rachel Wood stars. It's um, it's like a a rom com sort of in the sense that there is romance and it is funny, but it's nothing like a traditional rom com. There's lesbian content if you want that. It's just a wonderful, beautiful movie. Very touching, very romantic. Um, just just beautiful. So check it out. 
Yeah, I when I saw that film because I love Evan Rachel Wood, and yeah, no, it was it was so charming, but it definitely made me cry. Oh yeah. Well, it was just like I'm like this is so moving. I don't know what to do with my life anymore. Um, yeah, no, I guess. Okay, and then in terms of, it's okay if I recommend like an older film that oh, I rewatched recently. Yeah. So I know that everybody is really excited about Nomadland coming out, directed by Chloe Zhao. But I just want to go and say that the writer is such a great film that she directed. It came out a few years ago. It's beautiful. It also made me cry. And I think that, like, I love that film so much. And I rewatched it recently. And I I think the one thing about that film that I really love is that it just allows the moments for, like, like, the, like you know, like, that space between, like, silences is, like, a expression that I read in a review of it by someone who I can't remember. I was like, yes, I love it. I love that film. And it's just, it's beautiful. So, yeah. The writer. Chloe Zhao is a really, really wonderful director. And also, um, I truly recommend her first film, which songs, I can never remember if it's songs my brothers taught me or songs my brother taught me. But either way, I'm sure you'll find it. It's very beautiful that one I liked the writer but like songs never gets enough attention I think more people need to watch that one too okay, so- I watch songs too yeah no <laughs> I'm, I'm, listen all I do is like research for my dissertation and like watch movies I don't have a life it's a good life <laughs> yeah no well thanks again for having me I really appreciate it Thank you so much for being on, Julia, for a truly, I'm like, we did the truly most Canadian thing we could have done. It's two Canadians talking about an American film. Oh, my God. We sh- maybe we should have picked a Canadian film. I I was always like, I, I want to pick a Canadian film, but I'm like, no, this is this is truly accurate to the way Anglo-Canadians experience culture. Like, no one watches which is so sad i swear we have good movies and one day i'll talk about them on the podcast but that day was not today legit i mean didn't tiff come out of like it's top 10 canadian films like the other week of like this past year or something they do it yeah they do it every year they do their top 10 canadian films yeah and then i'm just gonna go and watch all 10 of those films and i'll be like okay my my canadian guilt is assaged i've I have ex- consumed our content and our culture enough. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Julia. Thanks again, Rebecca. Women Direct the Podcast is produced and hosted by me, Rebecca, and funded through the support of my coffee contributors. If you'd like to contribute, you can at coffee.com slash women underscore direct. That's K-O hyphen F-I dot com slash women underscore direct. Editing is by Sachi Lovett. Theme song is Tanya's Sister by Sarah Blakely. Thank you for listening. <laughs>